One of um, my favorite series of books as a child was C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and to be honest, it's actually probably still one of my favorite series of books. I, I, I actually just read um, through the, the series with my own kids a couple of years ago. And it was fun just to kind of see those, those books come alive in, in, as they were hearing some of those stories for the first time. And in, in the first book, kind of the original book that, that C.S. Lewis wrote in that series, um, is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that, in that book, um, four children from England uh, find their way into a magical land called Narnia. Um, and and the, the lion that's in the, the title of the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is, is the king of Narnia. His name um, is Aslan. And uh, there's a, a picture of, of the, the movie version of, of Narnia that came out, a picture of Aslan. And the, the children, though, they, they first hear about Aslan when they are at the, the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Um, and, and while they're at the home of, of the beavers, uh, one of the children, Lucy, asks about this Aslan, and she actually asks if Aslan is a man. So I'm just going to read a little bit from, from uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in, in this little section. Uh, Aslan a man, the, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver, don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. In, in the series, we come to see that Aslan, this lion, actually represents God, um, specifically Jesus, in the land of Narnia. And this description of Aslan that we find here, that, that he isn't safe, but he's good, I think is a wonderful and capture a picture of, of the true God, um, our God, who we worship. That, that in the Bible, we see the holiness of God, that, that he, is, he is holy and righteous, his wrath against sin, his power and glory that, that sinful humans cannot approach. He isn't safe, and yet he is good. We see his goodness, that his mercy to sinners, um, his blessing that he gives, even though we don't deserve it. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in our, in our text uh, this morning. My, my sermon title today is God's Holiness and Goodness. Um, we're going to see in, in this passage a reflection of both of these qualities of God, both his holiness, um, his, his set-apartness, but also his goodness and his mercy, and see how both of those qualities of who God is impacts our lives. We've been going through a, a sermon series over the last several weeks called David, a man after God's own heart, uh, looking at the life of David and his, his kind of winding path to becoming the second king of Israel. And we're actually going to jump over uh, quite a few chapters uh, from the text that I preached on last Sunday. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at this moment where, where David actually had the opportunity to kill King Saul, um, the, the, the first king of Israel, but he didn't. 
He spared Saul's life and actually had an interaction with him. Um, and so, but, but Saul kind of initially kind of said, oh, wow, you're amazing, David, that you didn't kill me. You deserve to be king. But then quickly changed his mind and he still was hunting after David. And, and so several chapters pass and, and eventually Saul is in, in a battle against the Philistines. And after being wounded in this battle, Saul actually falls on his own sword. He takes his own life. Um, and this moment where finally Saul was no more um, opened the door for then David to be crowned as king, whom he had been anointed. Remember, many chapters before this where Samuel had anointed David saying, you will be the next king. Um, and so finally, David was going to step into his kingship. But even that process took some time. If you, if you follow those first couple of chapters in 2 Samuel, where again, we're not going to look at all of those things, but I encourage you to read, read through those chapters there. Um, but finally, David was anointed and crowned as king over all of Israel. And one of the first things that he did as king is he conquered the city of Jerusalem, which had been controlled by the Jebusites. And he made Jerusalem his capital city. But there was something missing, something missing in, in, in the city of Jerusalem um, way back when, when the Israelites had been led out of Egypt by Moses, uh, before they entered the promised land, God had given the, them instructions to build something. Um, we, we heard about it actually in, in the scripture reading that the Jim read from Hebrews 9. He gave them instructions to build a tabernacle. And within that tabernacle, he gave them instructions to build one particular item, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, here's kind of a, you know, just to give you a visual of, of this ark. We're not talking about like Noah's ark, like a boat. Uh, we're talking about the ark of the covenant, this, this, this gold kind of box that, that was there. And, and, and one of the things that we, that we see in the Old Testament is that the ark actually functioned as God's throne. Um, and it was, it was supposed to be located in that tabernacle, this, this tent. And again, in Hebrews 9, we heard about that, this, this large tent that functioned as the central location for worship. But during King Saul's reign, the ark was not in the tabernacle. Um, in fact, the, the ark was in a man's house. And so when David became king, he decided that this was not right. He needed the ark to be brought into Jerusalem. It needed to be brought into the place where, where God was going to dwell um, and, and become the new center of worship for Israel. And so our text is going to actually describe this process of David bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And as we will see, again, in this passage, the, the process of David bringing the ark shows both God's holiness and his goodness um, in the process. So our text today is 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, verses 1 to 15. That's on page 218 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to, to follow along. Uh, page 218, uh, 2 Samuel 6, uh, verses 1 through 15. So hear God's word to us uh, this morning. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel 
were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went down and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Let's pray. Lord, uh, open our eyes to, to hear and receive from you this morning from your word. Um, from this passage, God, as we think about your holiness and your goodness and what David was learning in the midst of this and, and how you're shaping us through it too. So uh, speak now, we pray, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that we see in this passage about, about God's holiness and God's goodness is we're going to focus on, on the first of that, which is God's holiness. And the first thing we see is that God's holiness creates separation. That God's holiness creates separation. Um, the word holy actually means set apart. Um, it means that something is separate from something else. So when we say that God is holy, it means that he is set apart. He is different. He is, 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 is unique and, and, and one of a kind. He is distinct from us. Um, and that is particularly true with God's relationship to humanity, that God is perfect. He is righteous. He only does what is right. Whereas we as humans are imperfect and we do wrong, which the Bible calls, calls sin. And, and so this reality of humanity's sin is, is what creates this separation from a perfect, holy God. God's holiness creates separation from us who are not holy, who are imperfect, who are sinful. And throughout the Old Testament, we see um, these different things that, that kind of show this, this reality of the separateness and holiness of God. Um, and as I mentioned before, when, when Israel was in the wilderness, God told Moses to build a tabernacle that we heard again, again about in Hebrews uh, chapter 9, the, this large tent. Um, here's kind of a, one artist's rendition of, of this, the, of, of the tabernacle in the midst of the camp. And uh, in, the, in this image, you see one of the ways that God revealed himself to the people at that time, which was a pillar of fire um, in, in, the, in the wilderness. But you can see that there is this distinction, right? There's a separation between 
uh, God revealed in, in, this, in the pillar of fire and the rest of the camp. This tabernacle created this separation between God and the people. God was there in the midst of the people, but there were very particular ways that God would be present with them. There was this division between God and the people. Um, and you see this even more so inside the tabernacle. Um, again, in, in Hebrews 9, it talks about that within the tabernacle, the, there was this one room called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. Um, and, and within that room, um, it was this room that was completely set apart from all the other room parts of the tabernacle. It was, it was divided by a veil, by a, a curtain. And as it said in Hebrews 9, only one person could enter into that room. And only one time a year, the, the high priest. And he could only enter on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, which actually was this past week. Um, this past Wednesday was, was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement that, that the Jewish people continue to celebrate. Um, and so inside this room, the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and, and so the Ark, this, 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 this piece of this holy place, it represented the holiness of God. Um, and when God instructed Moses to make the Ark of the Covenant, he gave very specific instructions of how the Ark was to be handled. Um, again, here's kind of a, an image, one artist's rendition of this, that, that the ark you see here, it had, it had these four rings for two poles on either side of the ark. Um, and these poles were supposed to be um, attached to the ark at all times. And whenever the ark was to be moved, it was supposed to be carried by these poles and only by Levites, uh, the tribe in Israel that were assigned to take care of the tabernacle and all of the holy items that were there. And so God was very clear when he, when he created this. He said that the ark should never be touched. Um, in fact, he says in, in Numbers 4.15 about both the ark and the other holy items in the tabernacle. He says, uh, talking to, to, to the, the people who are caring for it, they must not touch the holy things or they will die. Made it very clear, right? That's the consequences. If you touch the holy things, it ends in death. Um, and so when we look at verse 3 of our text, and we find out that here in this moment of David trying to bring the ark to Jerusalem, it says, they set the ark of God on a new cart. All of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right, does it? That's not how God said that the ark was supposed to be transported, right? It wasn't supposed to be put on a cart. It was supposed to be carried by these poles, um, David is not handling the ark the way God said it was supposed to be handled. In fact, David is actually moving the ark similar to how the Philistines moved the ark. Um, back before Saul was king, there was this time where the Philistines, this, this other um, people group in the, in the land, they captured the ark of the covenant. Um, but, but the Philistines, when they, when they held the ark, it, it it didn't do them good. It, it was actually, they, were, they became afflicted with tumors in whatever city the ark was in. And so they said, we don't want this thing anymore. We're going to bring it, we're going to give it back to Israel. And they sent the ark back on a new cart pulled by two cows. And what's David doing? He's bringing the ark just like the Philistines did on a new cart pulled by oxen. And by choosing to move the ark that way, we end up seeing a problem, right? Because the oxen stumble at one point. And at that moment, this man Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark so it doesn't fall off the cart. And, and he means well, 
by touch, but by touching the ark, he violates what God clearly said in Numbers, right? No one is to touch the ark. And the consequence, if you do, is death. And that's what happens to Uzzah. He is struck down and he dies beside the ark. Now, initially, that, that might sound kind of extreme, right? Uzzah, he was just trying to protect the ark from falling, it falling on the ground. It doesn't seem like he's intentionally treating the ark with a lack of reverence. And, and actually, in, in verse 8, we read, Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. You know, David, he, this is supposed to be a, a joyful day, a celebratory day. They're bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And, and all of a sudden, along the way, they end up with a guy struck dead because he touched the ark. This, isn't, this day isn't turning out the way that David had been hoping. Now, here's the thing. God's holiness creates separation. And when sinful, imperfect humanity comes into contact with God's perfection, it is disastrous. Perfection and sin cannot exist together. It can't. Um, Here's kind of an illustration of this as I was thinking about this. Think about the reality of light and darkness. Light and darkness cannot actually coexist at the same, in the same place, in the same moment. Um, if you have a completely dark place, you know, like, like this forest, it's nighttime and it's completely dark, right? But as soon as you turn on a light, what happens? The light dispels the darkness, right? Wherever the light is present, the darkness is no longer there, right? The light is shining out into the darkness. The light overtakes the darkness. And, and so there's, in a similar way, God, who is light, we who are in our sin are darkness. And if you bring the, the, the light of God's holiness into contact with our darkness directly, our darkness is destroyed, right? Dark, dark, we will be destroyed in our sin. The holiness represented by the ark could not come into contact with a sinful human being or that person would be destroyed, which is what happened to Uzzah. This is how uh, C.S. Lewis uh, who I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the sermon, um, he wrote another book called Mere Christianity. Um, and and he, he puts it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. We have reacted the wrong way by sinning against God's law. Right? Because of our sin, we cannot gaze upon God and his perfect goodness and holiness or we would be destroyed. We cannot touch him in our sin. Right? I think too often we treat God's law like David did with transporting the ark. That we sort of see God's law as, as helpful suggestions you know, we'll, we'll try to keep it the best that we can, but we, we kind of think, well, you know, God will understand if, if I mess up from time to time, if I don't follow all the details, it's not a big deal, right? I mean, you can get, just try to get it relatively okay. You know, God is going to hopefully be okay with that. See, David, he thought it wasn't a big deal to use a cart to transport the ark. But that small detail ended up causing Uzzah his life. Our sin, even the things that we may think of as kind of small, insignificant sins, are a big deal to God. 
In our scripture reading, the other scripture reading from James 2, verse 10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. That covers all of us, doesn't it? We've all broken the law at one point or another, right? And so James says that we are guilty of actually breaking all of it, even if we've only broken one law. We're all guilty. And because God is completely perfect and good, his holy presence in our sin is actually a danger to us because of our sin. We cannot approach him in our sin. And this is exactly what David recognizes in verse 9, which reads, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? When he recognized the, 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 the holiness of God, he recognized God doesn't, yeah, he doesn't really care about the details, does he? He said, wow, even this little detail of how we bring the ark into Jerusalem, that matters to God. He recognized, man, I can't have this holy God near me, <laughs> right? He said, holiness creates separation and, and a perfect holy God cannot dwell with sinful humanity without separation. So, so he, he, he just says, you know what? This ark just needs to stay away from me. <laughs> needs to stay away from Jerusalem at all. Instead, he sends the, the, the ark to the house of this guy, Obed-Edom. Now, you can imagine how Obed-Edom felt about that, right? <laughs> the thing that just killed Uzzah, now David's sending to my house? Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know about that. That, that. that sounds like a great idea, David. But here's the thing. God doesn't want to bring destruction to us. He doesn't want even us to be separated from him. God wants to dwell with us. He wants to bring us blessing. He doesn't want to bring us destruction. And, and we actually see that in verse 11, that, that the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. So this thing, this ark that, that caused destruction to Uzzah because he had touched the ark, right? He, was, he got too close to it. He didn't follow God's law. Here, when it's brought into the home of Obed-Edom, it actually brings blessing. That's what Obed-Edom experiences, the blessing of God that comes through this, this, this ark. And so when David hears about this, he says, okay, maybe God isn't actually out to just destroy us. Maybe, maybe this ark could actually bring God's blessing. Maybe it would be good to bring the ark into the city of Jerusalem. And so he decides to try it one more time. But this time... He does things differently. And that leads to the, the second thing that we see in our text. You know, we've been focusing here on God's holiness, his otherness, right, which creates separation. The next thing that we're, we're going to look at here is God's goodness. And the thing that we see in, in this text is that God's goodness flows from obedience and sacrifice. How do we see that? Well, how does David able to actually bring the ark into Jerusalem? to experience God's goodness, to experience his blessing, the first thing he does, he shows obedience. Verse 13 says, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, notice that? No more cart, right? The ark's not on the cart anymore. Now it's being carried the way that God said it was supposed to be with, with those poles. Um, and actually in the, in the parallel incident, parallel passage to this incident, um, found in 1 Chronicles 15, we get some more details about this, um, that, that David actually kind of did his homework and, and discovered that, that 
this is the, God wanted his ark to be transported a certain way. Right? He wanted to be carried by those Levites. And so the second time, David instructs the Levites to do that, to carry the ark on their shoulders as Moses had commanded. And so here, what is David doing? He's showing obedience, even in the details, even in the little things, right? He's showing obedience to God. He's submitting to him. But he also does something else. Verse 13 continues, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. So David offers up these sacrifices every six steps. They're walking along, walk six steps, sacrifice. Walk another six steps, sacrifice. Now that might sound kind of excessive to us, right? Maybe kind of random. Why is David offering up these sacrifices while he's bringing the ark into Jerusalem? Well, throughout the Old Testament, sacrifices were used as a way to bridge the separation between a holy God and sinful people. Right? When God set up the tabernacle, one of the things he said is that, that at that tabernacle, the priest was to offer sacrifices on the altar in the outer courtyard as a way to atone for the sins of the people, to make God and the people at one again with each other. And on that, that, that one day a year, the day of atonement, the day when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, what did he do? He offered sacrifices and he actually sprinkled the blood of the animal toward the ark in the Holy of Holies as a way to sort of bring this, this saying, God, we can't approach your holiness, the, the ark, in our own strength, but, but, but we're offering these sacrifices and we're, we're, we're bringing this to you, God. And what happened, what was, what was going on with all these sacrifices is that, the, is that the animals were functioning as substitutes for the people. That the animals died so the sinful people wouldn't have to be destroyed. That, that, that there was blood involved, right? That there, was, there needed to be atonement um, for the sins of the people. And so when David is doing this, as he's walking towards Jerusalem and he's offering up these sacrifices along the way, it was a way for him to show worship and praise to God, but it also pointed to the fact that there's a cost to bridging the separation between a holy God represented by the ark and a sinful people. That it required sacrifice. It required a substitute to take the death that was deserved because of sin. You see, there's always a cost involved to God's blessing and goodness. Sin needs to be atoned for. When it, when it involves the holy God and sinful people, there needs to be something that bridges that gap, right? that, that brings those two together. The separation needs to be bridged. But here's the thing. We, we saw this in, in Hebrews 9. The author of Hebrews says that, that actually all those animal sacrifices, they weren't actually dealing with the problem, ultimately. That actually they were pointing ahead to something else. That, that David's acts of, of, of obedience and sacrifice, although here they're, they're, they're pointing ahead to something else. They're pointing ahead to the fuller solution that came from a descendant of David many years later. Jesus. That Jesus, he was both fully and perfectly obedient to the Father. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He, he was the one that opened the door for God's goodness to flow. But he, he had the goodness flow not just to him, but actually through him to us. That Jesus' obedience opened the door for God's blessing to come 
to sinful humanity. That God actually, the Bible says that that God credits us with Jesus' righteousness, with Jesus' obedience. And then Jesus also offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sin on the cross, as the ultimate sacrifice. Again, as Hebrews 9 talked about, that, that Jesus offered himself up once and for all. All those animal sacrifices, they could never deal with our sin, but Jesus could. He paid the price that was needed so that we wouldn't have to die. He was our substitute, taking the death that we deserve. And as he took our sin upon himself, it was as if Jesus was sort of touching the ark in our place. Taking the death that came to Uzzah, Jesus did it, right? He touched God's holiness bearing our sin, and he died so that we wouldn't. When Jesus died on the cross, something happened in the temple, the temple that was, that was built later on that, that reflected the tabernacle. When Jesus died, guess what, what tore? The veil that separated the holy of holies. When Jesus died on the cross, that, that veil came down. The, the, the curtain was torn in two. And that was showing us that now the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sits, where God is enthroned, guess what? That is now open to us. We're no longer separated from the Ark of the Covenant. We're no longer separated from this holy God because Jesus took our place. He opened the door. And so actually, we need to edit this second point that I wrote here because God's goodness doesn't flow to us in response to our obedience and sacrifice. Actually, God's goodness flows from Jesus' obedience and sacrifice. That it is through Jesus' obedience and his sacrifice that God's goodness and mercy and blessing can come to sinful people like you and me that David was actually pointing ahead to Jesus. There's another way that, that, that David's entry into Jerusalem points ahead to Jesus. Um, you know, J- David is, is bringing the ark, right, into Jerusalem, and there's this whole procession that's happening as he's entering the city. Well, guess what? There was a, there was a moment when Jesus entered the city, right, on, on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, And and when Jesus entered the city in the same way that that David entered, Jesus was actually functioning as the new Ark of the Covenant, that he himself was the place where God resides, that he was coming into the city just like David brought the Ark. And as he entered, what did the people shout out? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our kingdom of our father, David, right? They They were connecting Jesus with David. Jesus was both the new ark and the new David, the fulfillment of David, the fulfillment of the ark. And as David and the ark, and also much later as Jesus entered Jerusalem, guess what happened? There's something that was happening in that entry. Did did you hear it? There was a common response, and it was joyful worship. Joyful worship. You see, this is actually our response to God's holiness and goodness. Then that's my final point today that our response to God's holiness and his goodness is joyful worship. David brings the ark into Jerusalem 
with rejoicing and music and dancing. Uh, Verse 14 tells us that David danced before the Lord with all his might. You see, God was graciously entering this city that David had prepared. And and David, as he's finally following what, what God told him to do, right, to bring it in the right way, David is just overcome with joy and just dancing before the Lord. He worships God with all of his might. Uh, Later on in the chapter, I didn't have time to read what what follows this, um, but you can read it later, that that actually as David is dancing in all this joy, um, his wife, Michal, who's actually Saul's daughter, criticizes David for being, not being distinguished in his role of king. He says, what what are you doing here? You're, 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 You're being... This is not the the way that a king acts here. And David responds that he's not worshiping for her or for other people. He's worshiping for the Lord. He's worshiping before the Lord. That's who his his eyes are on. And he he says, you know, I'm going to become even more undignified than this and humiliated in, in my eyes because he doesn't care what other people think. He's worshiping before the Lord. He's so filled with joy that he just has to dance freely. But part of, again, his worship is, is, is this joyful, exuberant worship, but he's also worshiping the Lord through joyful obedience. That part of his worship is obedience, right? We, we receive God's blessing through Jesus' obedience, but our response to what Jesus has done for us is that we also obey. That we obey in response as worship to our God. He's finally following God's instructions for how to bring the ark into Jerusalem. But this, work, this obedience, it's not stifling. It's not, it's not constraining. As, as David obeys the Lord, he experiences new freedom in his worship. So he doesn't have to worry about the consequences of disobedience because now he's worshiping in line with God's will. So David brings the ark into the city according to God's specific instructions He's worshiping God through obedience, but he's also worshiping God just through this joyful celebration of dance. You know what, brothers and sisters? When we grasp what Jesus has done for us, our response to is joyful worship. Joyful worship. We can worship through singing and making music like the people of Jerusalem did. We do that every Sunday as we gather, right? We, we sing songs of praise as a way to worship our God. We might... Who knows? We might even dance like David did. I know maybe, maybe you feel a little uncomfortable doing that here. And, but, but, but you know what? We can, we can, yeah, if the Lord leads you to do that, why not, right? It's not about other people. It's about, it's about him. When our focus is on the Lord, we won't care what other people around us think. We, we can worship with joy and freedom. But we also, too, worship through joyful obedience, just like David did, realizing that, that obe- obeying God, it's not a stifling thing. It's not a, a thing that, that, that takes away our freedom, but actually obeying the Lord is a way to, to live out freedom, to live a free life as we, as we worship our God through our obedience. And it's important to remember that our obedience, our obedience doesn't cause God to bless us or love us. Jesus' obedience is what opens the door to God's blessing and goodness, but our obedience is a response of worship to God's blessing and goodness that he's shown to us through Jesus. So just a question to, to have you reflect on as we, as we close up here is, are you worshiping the Lord with joy? Are you worshiping the Lord with joy? Are you praising God 
like David did when the ark was brought into Jerusalem or, or like the people did when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on, on Palm Sunday? Do you see that Jesus is the very presence of God entering not only Jerusalem, but actually he wants to enter into our lives, into our hearts. You see, Jesus is, is not limited by a physical ark or a temple or even a human body. In fact, when we believe in Jesus, the Bible says that the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, dwells within us. Can you, can you think about that, right? The, the Bible says that we are actually now a temple of the Holy Spirit. So, so God has done such, such an amazing thing that, that we are no longer separated from God, but actually God himself, this holy God, dwells within us. That's how much he's bridged the separation. That he's not just somewhere off here, but he's actually living within us because of Jesus. And God now actually calls us holy. <laughs> he calls us holy in Jesus. That we are now set apart because of Jesus, because of Christ. So man, brothers and sisters, we, as we stand in awe of both the holiness and the goodness of our God, as we see how, how his holiness and goodness came together perfectly in Jesus, let's worship him with joy. Let's praise him. Let's praise him for his mercy to us as we recognize we do not deserve God to dwell with us. And then let's obey him, even in the little things as a response of worship and praise to our God. Let's dance with all our might, rejoicing in the freedom of the gospel. I invite you to, to pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, uh, that you have made a way for us as sinful people to relate to a holy God who is perfect and, and who, we, who would destroy us in our sin, Lord, that, that we recognize that our sin causes the separation, but you, God, have, have bridged that separation through Jesus. And so, Jesus, we are so grateful that you are willing to touch the ark. You're willing to take our sin and take the punishment of our sin on the cross and pay for it in full so that we could be brought together, that the curtain could be torn, that we can now enter into your presence directly, God, that we can pray to you right now, Lord, speak to you, knowing that, that you are with us, you are here in our midst, and, and that you are actually dwelling within us when we trust in you, that we are now temples of the Holy Spirit, God. This is amazing that you, the holy God, would come to be with us and among us. That you've done it all, Jesus. You have accomplished all of it in our place. And so help us, Lord, as we, as we recognize the, the, the miracle of this, to rejoice in you, to worship you, God, to, to just praise you in song and to praise you with our lives, to live our lives in joyful obedience, wanting to follow your law, wanting to follow the things that you are leading us to in your word and doing it out of joy and gladness. Not trying to earn anything from you, not trying to, to you know, but, but doing it out of worship and thanks and praise and joy. Do that in us, Lord, we pray. Change us, Holy Spirit, to be worshipers like David was, to dance before you with all our might. We pray with this in Jesus' name, amen.